today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years. Cashandcarrykitchens.ie Email todaycb at rte.ie Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Professor Sean Daly, who's Master of the Rotunda Hospital. You're very welcome. Good morning to you. Thanks for coming in. I was looking at your figures for last year. 8,442 babies born in the Rotunda in one year, in 2023. Do you have the right staffing levels to cope with that demand? Um, So historically, the three Dublin maternity hospitals all had in or around the same number of deliveries and the same number of staff. And I think... At the moment, we still have the same number of staff, but we would have 17% more deliveries than the Coombe and 18% more deliveries than Hollis Street. And while I'm not for a moment saying that they need more staff, I think we need more staff. Um, I think when you look at our kind of historic um, uh, birth rates, there was a bump because of COVID. So 2021 or 2022 was the busiest year I think the Rotunda ever had, uh, except perhaps for one year. Um, Across Ireland, that has resulted now in birth rates dropping. But the Rotunda is up 2% um, and our Mm -hmm. registrations suggest we'll be up again this year. Okay, so, so is there a rule in place that your staff levels and the other maternity hospitals in Dublin, that they all have to be at the same level? No, but I think historically, because we were all at the same level, um, we all kind of needed a certain number of staff. And Mm -hmm. the difficulty and the challenge is how many midwives per delivery or how many deliveries per midwife should you have? And that's actually very difficult to calculate in Ireland because our maternity services are very different to, for example, the UK. But what we see in the north side of Dublin is the acuity, the the um, challenges that we face with our patient population are at a different level than what is faced in the other maternity hospitals. Well, explain that to me. Why is that the case? So I think that... um, We would have much more socially disadvantaged communities in North Dublin. We would have people who wouldn't attend necessarily as often as we would like. We would have a younger group of of women becoming pregnant. And all of those things add to the complexity. Mm -hmm. You know, I think having moved from the Coombe to the Rotunda, now my fourth year, um, I noticed a huge difference. I, I thought that, you know, The Coombe and the Rotunda dealt with a a similar, um, I suppose, degree of social deprivation, but it's not the case. The the Rotunda have far more socially challenged families than than would be seen in the Coombe. I saw in a previous interview you did, you mentioned the new Irish and in particular people coming from the Roma community. And it's difficult to engage with them throughout their pregnancies. Is, Is that the case? Yeah, like I think pregnancy is an opportunity, to be honest, you know, because women have to engage with maternity and medical and midwifery services when they're pregnant. And I think that's an opportunity for us to show them that this is worthwhile, that come for your cervical screening, come for your breast checks um, and and. You know, we would deliver more than 500 women from the Romanian community every year, you know. So we have a huge kind of responsibility there, but also a huge opportunity. And we have an inclusion midwife, an inclusion social worker in the Rotunda now to help us deal with that challenge. Mm -hmm. But that is a challenge, getting people to engage. And I'm just using that community as an example, because I know you highlighted it yourself in the past. But that is the type of problem you're facing, is it? Yes. So coming back then to staffing levels... 
Is it difficult to attract staff at the moment, given your location and given the housing crisis? Yeah, like I think everybody, every uh, hospital in Dublin is having challenges um, kind of recruiting staff. We are constantly trying to recruit more nurses and midwives. And you're right, I think the housing is a big issue. You know, um, we have a 1930s nurses home on our campus. Um, We have about 40 rooms there where people do sleep when they're on call, you know, but but it's not fit for purpose. It's certainly not 21st century um, accommodation. And we have engaged in fairness with the Minister for Housing and the Minister for Health, and they are both very supportive of helping us. We have, um, at the end of this month, we will have a hopefully a very detailed analysis of the possibilities for that nurse's uh, home uh, building. So you're hoping to develop it? Absolutely. And extend it? Develop and possibly extend. Now, the other, I suppose, option that is being considered is should we knock it down, you know, um, and start afresh? Um, The corridors in that building are very small. There's no lifts. There's few toilets. There's very few kitchens. So really, if we're looking to provide accommodation for staff, we will have to dramatically improve that building mm-hmm. if it's going to be fit for purpose. Do you think there should be a Dublin waiting for medical staff? Um, well, I, first of all, I don't think it would be for, just for medical staff. I think it would be for all healthcare workers. You know, we have trouble getting people to work in our laboratories, for example. You know, so um, I know the Dublin waiting is something that has been considered and felt not to be reasonable. Um, but there's no question it is more expensive and more difficult to live in Dublin than it is to live in other more rural parts of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it's more difficult for you to attract staff, I would imagine, as a result of that. Haven't you people travelling from mainland Europe to work? We do, yeah. We have a number of our staff who come in for a week and stay in our nurses' accommodation and uh, fly in and fly home. Um, and uh, and they're very valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, they really are very valuable. Can I talk to you about the Dublin riots, November 23rd. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're right in the, the centre of that, first when the stabbings happened late in the afternoon and then on when, when the riots happened and some of your staff helped out and some of them I know felt very nervous in the days afterwards coming and going from work. Has there been a lasting impact of, of that night? Um, I don't think so. You know, I think um, there is ongoing problems that our staff, particularly uh, the staff that um, operate in our security service, they frequently get abuse, you know. Um, Racist abuse. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I don't know how to challenge that, you know. Um, I think a lot of our staff are from overseas. I think, um, you know, this year we decided to bring back our kind of long service awards from 25 years to 20 years. And we had a wonderful um, lunch event in the Rotunda where we celebrated people who had worked in the Rotunda for 20 years. And and many, many of those staff were from overseas. And it was great, you know. Um, and, uh, and they are very, very valuable individuals. But you're right, in the days and perhaps a little longer than that afterwards, they were anxious about coming into town, anxious getting public transport. Um, some of them live locally, worried about walking to and from the rotunda. Um, and that's just utterly unacceptable. Mm-hmm. You had to organise for some people to be escorted to work around that time, didn't you? Well, we had to send out taxis for people, yeah, you know. 
Um, and uh, and you know, I think that that was. I think an appropriate response. We ended up getting more security in and around the hospital for about a week afterwards. But thankfully, nothing escalated from there. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult, though. And you said, I don't know how to address that when you were talking about the security staff who've been subject to abuse. When you hear of that happening, I mean, how do you deal with it? What can you say? Well, I think you can support your staff, you know, um, and uh, I think we really try and do that. Um, I think we can tell people if we get the opportunity that it is absolutely unacceptable. um, And uh, and you just have to deal with these things on a one to one basis, Claire. I don't think you can kind of wave a magic wand and change you know, the way people think or or believe, you know, and, you know, as I was sitting outside, I heard about the arson attacks, you know, um, and that, again, is utterly unacceptable, you know, um, and uh, and in fairness to the government, I think they're trying to address it. You've also spoken about um, inquests, difficult inquests, where your staff have been asked to come in and give evidence as, as witnesses. And they go in, you say, in good faith, but they often leave those inquests traumatised. Will you tell me more about that? So um, inquests, as you know, are held by the coroner in order to try and give the couple um, an answer. And and I believe inquests are very important, you know, but but what sometimes happens is that people are cross-examined. Um, I honestly believe nobody comes into work to do the wrong thing, you know, um, and do mistakes happen? Yes, sometimes they do happen. And I think we would put our hands up and say, you know, we didn't do what we wanted to do in that particular situation. But people can feel pilloried and attacked. And sometimes there are senior counsel there for the family whose role is to to try and um, ensure that the truth c- comes out. But the practicality of that is that that people, some of whom are quite inexperienced, um, are are facing uh, a very difficult cross examination, mm-hmm. and um, and unfortunately, the coroner is not a judge, and um, and I think has difficulty intervening and saying, look, that's inappropriate. So we try and... I don't know how you solve that, though, because as you said, the family wants answers. And how else do you get them unless you cross-examine the people who were there when the event happened? Are you suggesting that inquest should be judge-led? Well, no, because I think, you know, there is a very well-resourced coroner's kind of, certainly in Dublin, coroner's uh, system now. And um, I myself was at a coroner's inquest three weeks ago, you know, um, and uh, and the, they, they didn't have legal representation, I don't think. Um, but But I was questioned for an hour and I'm kind of experienced, you know, and yet it is um, difficult. You know, and uh, and it goes back to kind of why do people go to work? Why do they do what they do? If you're a nurse and a midwife, you know, you're a very dedicated professional. You are not going in to do the wrong thing. And if, as sometimes happens, um, unfortunate things uh, evolve or happen, 
it's very difficult to blame one person for that because it's it's rarely one person's fault. Mm-hmm. It's a, a Swiss cheese kind of effect where you get one little thing that might have been different and another little thing that might have been different and another little thing that might have been different and then you put them all together and you have a significant adverse clinical Sometimes event. Sometimes there are avoidable mistakes and I suppose what that process yes. is about is about finding out what that mistake was. So I don't know how maybe you could suggest a way to change the system so it's less adversarial for for the staff. Well, I think what we try and do is prepare the staff. Um, Senior midwives or or, um, doctors go to the coroner's court to try and give support. But when you're up in the chair on your own, you really are on your own. And I think there are ways of asking questions um, and perhaps there are ways not to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, can I ask you about the cesarean section rate at the Rotunda? It's at 38%. It's above the World Health Organization recommendation, which is about 10 to 15%. Why is that? Well, and we, we spend a lot of time looking at this, I can promise you. Um, about half of those cesarean sections are, are women who request a cesarean section. So about And if you request a cesarean section, are you given one? Absolutely. Why? Because uh, I think women have the right to choose how they want to have their but, baby. But is it not a, a high risk way to deliver a baby? No. A planned cesarean section is not a high risk procedure. For the, for the baby or the mother. So if I decide I this is the way I want to give birth to my baby at the Rotunda, no questions asked, I will be offered that option. Yeah, I think we would talk you through the process, the advantages and disadvantages. Um, only this morning I met the um, some of our more junior colleagues and emphasised the fact that if you're having a planned cesarean section, it shouldn't be before 39 weeks because um, babies are more likely to be admitted to the special care baby unit because they fluid in their lungs. Um, but after 39 weeks... The, the increase is minimal, if anything. Mm-hmm. So um, why does the World Health Organization say it should be between 10 and 15 percent? I think that's historic, to be honest. I'm not sure. Like that, that number has been around for 20, 25 years. You know, I think in practical terms, no unit in Ireland is trying to deliver only 10 to 15 percent of the women. I think what we are concentrating on in the Rotunda is trying to make sure that women who don't want a cesarean section don't have a cesarean section. And the big group there are women in their first pregnancy. So if you're in your first pregnancy and you come in at spontaneous labour, you should have a 12 to 14 percent chance of needing a cesarean section. Mm -hmm. So 85 plus percent of women will achieve a vaginal delivery. If we end up inducing you, because we're not particularly good at inducing people, 50% of first-time mothers end up with a cesarean section. And we really need to look at why we're inducing people, you know, particularly women in their first pregnancy. And the induction process inevitably takes 24 hours plus, and women are tired, exhausted, have been in the hospital, perhaps not sleeping as much as they normally would. And they end up with a cesarean section. And understandably, they come back and say, I don't want that again. So why are you, why is the, is the service inducing women, do you think, do you believe? So there's a new induction of labour guideline that has just come out. Um, and uh, I think it suggests that women should be offered induction at 41 weeks. That's seven days past the estimated due date. I think that um, 
there has been other studies that have come out to say that first-time moms should be induced at 39 weeks and their cesarean section rate is actually lower. I think that's an American study. I'm not sure how applicable it is here, but I think that has influenced some people to offer cesarean sections earlier, earlier or to, uh, to if, offer to induce, yeah, yeah, and and pregnancy is can be a difficult time, and as the pregnancy goes on and the baby gets bigger, and the women feel tireder. By the time they come to 38 Listen, weeks... who are you telling? I, you, exactly. you're, look, you're there and you get this thing out. But you're yeah. saying maybe we shouldn't be inducing. Is that what you're Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. I'm saying maybe we should be waiting. Maybe we should be trying to support women to get to 41 weeks because we know the vast majority of women will go into spontaneous labour within four or five days of their duty. Mm-hmm. Maybe then it's the maternity services who are encouraging the induction rather than the woman asking for it, or is it the other way around? I think it's a mixture, to be mm-hmm. honest. But I think in the rotunda, we don't want to be encouraging that. OK, and um, you mentioned the UK earlier. You said that their maternity services are different to what we have on offer here. They have, if you're pregnant in the UK, you can give birth in four places, at home, in a midwife-led unit, alongside a maternity uh, unit or standalone in an obstetric labour ward. So explain to me how that's different to what we have here. So there are only two midwifery-led units in the country, one in Cavan and one in Drogheda. And they do run alongside the general labour ward. Um, I think they are very popular um, and I think they work very well. Um, the um, opportunity to deliver at home is something that um, is... I suppose, has now come under the governance of the maternity hospitals. Um, The challenge for us is that not all the midwives who provide that service would have the training that would get them registered with onboard alternate, for example. Um, uh, A lot of, or some of those midwives are coming from the UK. They have different practices. And like at the end of the day, um, what is important to me is the safety of the woman and her baby. Um, so delivering a woman at home who's had a previous cesarean section, to be honest, I think is unacceptable, too risky. And you could say that I'm biased and I would say I probably am biased because I see the the ones that go wrong and I, I'm not there in the woman's home when she has her spontaneous vaginal delivery having had a previous cesarean section. But for me, it's all about balancing of risks and and underlying that is trying to, to give the best experience for the individual woman and her family, mm-hmm. you know. And and absolutely, it is challenging to come into somewhere like the Rotunda or the Coombe or Hollis Street, which are all very busy units, and to, and to imagine that you're going to get the one-to-one care that you would get from a private midwife in your own bedroom, you know. Um, but we really strive to do that. We really do. And um, and you clearly believe that's the best way to do it, the safest way to do it. Yeah, no, I think if you've had a previous vaginal delivery in, in a maternity hospital, then delivering at home is something that is, 
a lot less risky. As I said before, if we can look after women in their first pregnancy, to be honest, they'll probably look after themselves from there. Okay, listen, we're almost out of time, but I just want to ask you about this new Dublin traffic plan, which we heard about this week. A ban on private cars travelling through Dublin city centre, that clearly will have an impact on the rotunda. Have you considered it in the context of, of what that impact might be? So um, I suppose we haven't seen the final plans. You know, um, we have, I think, a very good relationship with Dublin City Council. We have a major capital development that we'll be putting planning in for within the next six months or so. Um, And I think we will work with them. You know, I, I think the opportunity to take traffic out of the city is a good one. But people but if, need. If, if you're coming from the south side of the city to the rotunda, though, and there's no traffic going through the city centre, you could be in bother. Yeah, so we need to work out a plan with Dublin City Council to allow not only our patients, but our staff, and particularly when you're coming in for an emergency. You know, um, I was on call on, on Wednesday night and came in for two emergencies, you know, and. Uh, and and needed to get in, you know. Mm-hmm. So I so think we will, will need to work with Dublin City Council. To that'll have to be factored in. Professor Sean Daly, thank you very much uh, you. for coming in. That's the master of the rotunda. We'll take a break. Text 51551. Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1.